So what you've seen has not been a consistent growth. You've seen a dynamic matching of the reality on the ground. Like the general denomination, you have been able to shrink and swell as needed in the Bureau. Okay. So then that would belie... So the United Methodist understanding has been this this unstoppable law of growth regardless of what happens on the ground. Ever since the UMC was formed, the denomination's been in decline, but the bureaucracy has has continued to swell. And that has wow. not been the case with the EMC. You've been able to discern, hey, we're in a season of shrinking right now, so the bureaucracy needs to sleep, uh, shrink as well, which is really That's- quite a blessing, you know— um, well, what what that says to me is that the the UMC largely just has worldly pressures on it, which are you know more, more, more. Whereas the EMC really does seem to have maintained a, a sense of propriety and balance. Um, does that seem to be what I wanted to ask a little bit ago? Was this this ethic of balance? Is that mostly because of just the personalities that have risen to the top, or is that an ethic that you think pervades the whole group? I think it pervades the whole group. Um, I don't, I don't have the long Methodist history that some have Mm -hmm. because I came up from that other tribe. Sure. But one of the things that absolutely drew me, uh, and and I think this speaks, I think this answers your question, Jeffrey. Mm -hmm. One of the things that absolutely drew me to the Evangelical Methodist Church and, and drew me to love it so much, um, is one of our, uh, articles of religion, articles of faith is that we believe in a diversity of expression at the local church level. Mm. And so I think that comes out of that same value of of understanding uh, diversity and yet an appreciation for a balanced core. And so I think it probably, I think, you know, it it probably is one, we have 26 articles of religion. I think um, they came from largely the 39 yeah. of the, of the Anglican church. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it says, I, I don't have it right in front of me, but it says something like they are to be rebuked who openly speak against any rite or ceremony in their church that is not repugnant to scripture. Now, of course, that's old language from the, you know, met- no, it's good. History, it's good. I like it. Yeah. Essentially yeah. says, Churches are going to be different. Yeah. It's okay for worship expression and and uh, all of that to be different, so long as it's not repugnant to the Word of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I love that about the EMC. We really are diverse. We've mm-hmm. we have pastors who preach in robes. We have pastors who preach from the lectionary. We have pastors who absolutely do not. Um, kind of would almost feel silly uh, doing so. Uh, interestingly, but we we have some high church where people where we have acolytes and liturgists and people mm-hmm. they process in and process out, and then we have uh, much more you know kind of free open expression of of worship and you know in worship teams. I think that's probably the predominance of our of our EMC uh, body uh, across the board. But I really do think at our core, we do, this isn't just because of a personality, you know, or the personality of the recent superintendents. I think it's something that we value as a, as a faith tribe. That's really interesting. And that's something that a lot of denominations shoot for, but don't even come close to managing. It's very difficult to have a good general sense about where there needs to be unity and where there can be some some diversity. Um, as we look at, I mean, one of the main things that people coming out of the United Methodist Church care about right now is the trust clause and whether or not the uh, 
the general conference or what whatever it is it is a general conference in in the EMC whether or not it can lay claim to the local church building or assets and was i right to get the impression that that is not something that is done in the EMC correct okay uh, in 1946 when we were founded they they essentially uh, from from a very colloquial kind of expression or way to say it they put two insurance policies in place. One was local church ownership of property, and two was the calling of the pastor at the local level. Now, the denomination ordains and approves the selection, the, the pool of ministers from which a church may draw, mm -hmm. but the church may call its own pastor. And then also we have an escape process or a withdrawal process that a church can walk through. And uh, if they do all of the you know, make sure that they're not, they, they've paid past conference supports or paid back any grant that was given them when the church was founded or something like that. Anyway, it's all spelled out in our, in our discipline, but at the end of that process, they can walk away with their ministers and their buildings if they, if they choose to do so. Now, there are a few, I think I explained in one of your, you know, in, in, a, in answering one of your questions in the grid that you have right. wonderfully created a few, a very few of our churches have willingly, voluntarily deeded their property to the general conference to protect it. From their perspective, they felt like maybe in the, in their local church history past, there may have been a charlatan or someone mm -hmm. who came along who tried to step in and then lead the church away. Yeah, And so maybe because of that tainted history, they said, you know what, what we're going to do is we're going to deed the property to the conference and that way it can't just happen quickly and easily. Mm -hmm. So there, we have a couple, three churches across our whole movement that have done that. But as a part of our regular DNA, local churches own their own buildings and they call their own pastor. And we, and that that's the core of who the, I mean, that those are fundamental. Um, that's a fundamental part of our DNA. Is there any scenario in which a church will not pay whatever funds the denomination says are owed in order to separate and that the denomination then tries to do a, a hostile takeover? Yes, unfortunately, we've, I, I wouldn't necessarily form it as hostile takeover, but we, we have just tried to, we have in a couple of instances, and I could name them to you, it's not important that we yeah, do that. No. Um, but in our, in our, in the 25 years of my history, uh, we've, uh, attempted to stand up and say, you will follow the discipline on these matters. And then a whole variety of stories come out of that. Some sure. churches finally buckled and said, oh, okay, we get, we've gone we, like a classic case is we had an in, we had a place where that they just did not want to follow the rules regarding the ministry, regarding the apportionments or anything, mm -hmm. what we call conference support. And we eventually had to take them to binding arbitration. And so um, at the end of that process, uh, the, the building was ours because they walked away from it. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it wasn't necessary. I wouldn't necessarily phrase it as a hostile takeover because we didn't we didn't really want the building. We, right. We're not we're not interested in building and money. We're interested in congregations and, and the gospel. Yeah. But when a church chooses to not follow the rules. There have been occasions in the past where we've had to get uh, aggressive and and bring in uh, lawyers and uh, agencies to try to to try to make those local churches do what they said they would do, 
and that is follow the discipline, even if it's an escape clause or or something else. Um, so it's so there's been some not wonderful uh, scenes of history where that is concerned. There, one of the things I noted, um, and for viewers, they've heard you and me refer to a document that that you've filled out. There's a spreadsheet that I'm going to make available. I don't know how or where, but anybody who wants it, you can write me and I'll, I'll email it out. It's a comparison chart, chart between different Wesleyan denominations. Uh, one of the things I noted in, in your notes was there's a process whereby if there is a local church that's not obeying the discipline and they're stepping out of line with respect to their doctrine or something else, two-thirds of the churches can vote to disfellowship them from the denomination. Did I read that correctly? No, actually, it's two-thirds of the general council. Um, so the, the, our general council is, is the board essentially almost like a local church board, but they are the board of directors, um, of the denomination in between general conference years. Okay. So they are tasked with approving budgets and filling vacancies and those kind of things. So if a congregation is so divergent, you know, either theologically or just, uh, accountability or, 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 or a rogue um, minister or rogue church, the general council, which is made up of all of our board chairmen, all of our superintendents, our global superintendents, our general secretary, mm -hmm. a late representative, a men's and a women's representative. It's about 21 or 22 people. Two thirds of that body can vote to disaffiliate a congregation to just it's the opposite of the withdrawal procedure. It's it's the from the denomination standpoint um, where we just say you, you're no longer EMC. You cannot use our name, mm -hmm. um, and and you need to just separate. Uh, you you are separated from us by choice of the general council. But so it's not two thirds of the churches. It's two thirds of the voting members of the council. That's okay. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad I asked that question because I had gotten confused about that. I, I'm much more, I mean, coming out of the United Methodist Church, I'm much more a fan of that approach than the local church disaffiliation. You know, I, uh, I if you if you use watch the uh, interview I did with the primitive Methodist, Nathan Doyle, um, they did have a trust clause uh, in place where they could hypothetically make claim to certain properties, and then they just decided, we don't want to be in the business of doing that. So they just ended it. And I, I'm hoping that that's the trend that takes over in the future. But as it is, you know, a lot of these denominations like the Free Methodist Church or the Wesleyan Church, my church out of hand will not consider because realistically there there are scenarios where they're getting taken to court by the denomination that they choose to affiliate with. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that there's a future where not just the GMC, but I mean, where really there's just no denominations holding that authority over local churches anymore. But that makes it really hard to have, when it's all carrot and no stick, it's really hard to maintain any semblance of um, shared identity in Christ, and that's why it's so important to have that mechanism of just disfellowshipping congregations that are not interested in that. And so how uh, you, you acknowledge that there were scenarios where the EMC got involved in litigation with local churches. How much has that happened versus how much has it happened that the executive council, I forget what you call it, uh, disfellowships the church by two-thirds vote? Your has it been a majority one approach or has it been pretty half and half? 
I, I think I would actually say numerically, the majority is the disaffiliation okay. um, process. It's just, but it's hard to say. It's hard. It's hard to quickly frame that answer, mm -hmm. Jeffrey, because the stories are so big of the fights, right? In terms of numerically, how many churches have have actually we gone to kind of battle with through mm -hmm. arbitration and that sort of thing are probably relatively few, mm -hmm. but they're such big stories. They consume yeah, so much they of loom large, yeah. energy and resources. Mm -hmm. So, but I think it's actually true to say that the majority of in the last many years has uh, of separation has been more the disaffiliation, but but there are huge stories, unfortunately, of 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 battles, and I, and I wish it weren't so. Yeah, we we have one situation. I, I'll just tell you. Yeah. Again, I won't name the place or the people or whatever, but we had a church who um, was established fifty years before, thoroughly died in the world evangelical Methodist church. The, but the last 10 years of its history was led by someone who did not come from our tradition. I didn't either in, in the sense I didn't grow up in the EMC, but this person came from a different tradition and they were not denominationally minded, quite mm -hmm. frankly. And they'd been allowed to kind of split, put down roots for 10 years with that congregation. Well, there came a time when we actually started to try to hold that that minister's feet to the fire on just things as simple as coming to meetings and doing reports. And I mean, they paid their conference support, but they didn't, he just, they were not in the denomination, so to speak. And mm -hmm. there were some divergent theologies even that began to clarify, be clarified. So the bottom line is we stepped in and tried to uh, bring some accountability there. Mm -hmm. The pastor just wouldn't hear of it. So he just left and 95% of the people left with him and then a year and so then we continued we tried to revitalize that church and bring in a new pastor and we were we were being moderately successful tiny little church but the sad part of that story is a year and a half later they they we we get paid, uh, a, a lawsuit they sued us claiming that they owned the building mm -hmm. a year and a half after they walked out and left yeah uh and, and i the way i say that memory is they thought they walked out as insert the church name no they walked out from the church name yeah yeah but then legally they tried to press the point that 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 the church building belonged to them and it ended up being a three-year story after that that we ended up having to settle out of court well, i say having to but we chose to just say you know what go away and so we settled out of court with them yeah it's just so sad that yeah. these the fights get so consuming over stuff that's going to burn up yeah. you know and it distracts us from the main uh goal of of spreading the gospel of christ so i'm sorry for chasing that rabbit i know it's, it's it's good to recapitulate are... the history i mean that's that's where a group's I, I, identity comes from and so yeah and this is something that United Methodists stepping out of the United Methodist Church uh, very much care about. They want to know. Uh, I, I most most churches were United Methodists to begin with because of the strengths that come with being bound with other churches under shared doctrine and discipline and and spirit with which we first set out. Um, but when that gets 
nasty and negative, how what how what's the potential fallout of that? So I'm I'm going to soon inter- interview somebody from the Association of Independent Methodists. I I think what I'm going to find is they are so permissive in their doctrine and their discipline that there isn't much that really holds them together. What you're portraying is that you guys really do have a shared identity in Christ, even as you allow for a good deal of diversity and expression, and that's something that a denomination makes possible, but it's very rare that you get that without some uh, threat to in the autonomy of the local church. And so that's that's what we're up against here, and, and someone listening to this has to discern, okay, does it sound like if we signed on with the EMC, that would just be a repeat of the UMC, or does it sound like there are some safeguards that would prevent a nasty fallout similar to what we see in the United Methodist Church? And so that's that's what, you know, they have to look into this more, because clearly the EMC has teeth that say the Congregational Methodists don't have, or the Primitive Methodists don't have, um, but that also seems to have some benefits that those groups may or may not have. So I, I, th- I appreciate you going into that with me. Just briefly, let's get into doctrine. Um, do you the is there uh, do you confess entire sanctification at least in theory and on paper? Absolutely. Okay. One hundred percent. Our we, we, our group is pretty well uh, unified across the board on that. Other than tiny little pockets, like maybe the minister sure. that I referenced just a second okay. ago. But but yeah, uh, very straightforwardly. Uh, we one of the things that we really love and we ask about in our board of uh, minister relations interviews for new candidates. One of one of the traditional vows, which I know you know is there uh, in, in Methodist uh, tradition, is um, in um, in the ordination ceremony. Mm-hmm. Do you you know? Do you expect to be made perfect in love in this life? Mm-hmm. Are you groaning after it? Yeah. We really value uh, the understanding of the of the possibility and and promise of entire sanctification and value it deeply. Very good, uh, female clergy. Uh, from our founding, absolutely. Uh, or, or we we need to shore up our document to make a clearer statement. But there's but all of our language is inclusive language. He, she, and in terms of you know for the clergy, and uh, from our founding, we we have just recently pressed into that issue, and uh, some other move, um, faith tribes like the Nazarenes and the um, Wesleyans have really wonderful, robust statements, clarifying statements in the discipline that we lack. But but from our history, from our earliest days, we uh, ordain women and are com- I'm very comfortable with that. That's where that's who we are. Okay, sacraments are they closer to just tokens, or is Christ mystically present in them? Great question. Um, they're more than tokens. We certainly reject transubstantiation. Um, I, I think, in a sense, we would not even be on consubstantiation ground. But, but I do believe. I I think that across our uh, people, we we believe in uh, the mystery and and the real presence of Christ in in the sacraments, both in baptism and and the Lord's Supper. Pedo Baptist so or I don't. I don't I'm I'm terrible in, in 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 as a systematic theologian. I probably just you know cause people to pull their hair out. But well, I think um, what you just told us is there isn't an official stance on how uh, uh, 
ecumenical, <laughs> evangelical Methodists all, all have to see it. For some, it'll be closer to tokens. For some, it'll be closer to real presence. You, excellent redirect. That's right, Jeffrey. Okay. Pedo-Baptist versus believer-Baptist. Uh, believer's baptism. Okay, so babies are not baptized in the evangelical Methodist tradition. Oh, oh okay. I'm sorry. I misunderstood your term. Yeah. Um, well, we are an interesting blend there. Okay. Um, we allow local church pastors, and it's written right in our uh, governing documents, to either baptize or dedicate. We we have firmly stood on both uh, hills, and, and we just allow a pastor uh, to choose their own terminology there, but We've, we're pretty strong um, that that if you're going to baptize infants, it should be with a clarifying understanding that that's just a mark of uh, similar to circumcision or whatever, but a mark of the fact that you're in the family of God and under the gracious blanket of the preaching and teaching of the gospel mm -hmm. as you're part of a local assembly, but but still there will either be a need for a confirmation of that or a believer's baptism as an adult. Um, so infant baptism is not a seal to salvation in our in our understanding does that make sense it does uh would you confess the doctrine we, of salvation by faith alone yes okay okay so um other things that i know are doctrinal distinctives about uh your tribe uh, you use the word uh inerrant with respect to the right lens for interpreting understanding scripture that's that's across the board that's official doctrinal stance inerrant the word of god's inerrant okay uh, it's in its autographs yes i mean we absolutely believe in the plenary inspiration of scripture so um so inerrancy again i know can be a hotly debated issue like what exactly do you mean mm -hmm. uh, by inerrant but it 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 is absolutely inerrant in its teaching and understanding of, of soteriology and and uh, and sin and salvation and 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 sanctification and all of that. And um, so I, I I'm more comfortable with the term plenary inspiration than I sure. am inerrancy. But we are absolutely, but we are, but inerrancy is a big deal uh, yeah. with us. It's just that it can be debated as to exactly what that means. But we are a group that. That, is, that stands firm on inerrancy and plenary inspiration. And I, again, I, I may not be the best theologian to rightly divide the nuance between those two things. I'm but, not, I'm but, not either. I, I think my, yeah. my reasoning and in, in thinking through it, and I think what I've understood is a fundamentalist, a self-described fundamentalist would be pretty comfortable as an evangelical Methodist, but uh, a a liberal or progressive would not. Would that be a, a correct impression okay. to get? So that's a very correct impression. We we are uh, we, we are strong on the issue of scriptural authority and plenary inspiration and inerrancy. Yes, very good. Um, so the the other thing that United Methodists care very much about is uh, revised sexual ethics with respect to transsexuality and and homosexuality. In the spreadsheet that I put together, the only group, the only Wesleyan body that says, hey, you know, there's going to be a place for open out homosexuals, not just in our churches, but in our clergy, that's the United Methodist Church. Most of the other bodies, the, the, what they employ is, we understand everybody has human dignity and everybody's a child of God. However, the Word of God is pretty clear on this, and while we will welcome homosexuals into membership— we will not let them be uh, clergy. 
And uh, I think about half of them say, we're not going to limit the church membership with respect to that. We're going to depend on God uh, convicting them of their hearts. Um, the language that you supplied is active homosexuality is a sin. They will not be admitted into church membership, nor will there ever be clergy. Uh, our clergy will never do a gay wedding to their knowledge because we live in the trans era where some people uh, manifest an appearance that's different from what their biological status is. But the, what I notice is a difference in posture. The evangelical Methodist language that you supplied is much less concerned with I would say people pleasing, you know, taking a posture that's less offensive and just much more clearly, this is who God calls us to be. We owe no apology. You know, sure, everybody's made in the image of God. That doesn't need to be said. What does need to be said is there are standards that we will maintain. That's that's very correct, Jeffrey. I I, I don't know how many people will access your your spreadsheet again. It's mm -hmm. wonderful. I encourage I encourage everybody listening to get a hold of it, you know, to to write and um and get a hold of it. But um, do you mind if I just kind of read a portion of our discipline Please. on yeah, that card? Yeah. Or if, that, if that's not something you'd like me to do. I'd yeah, no, it's fine. Do it. Yeah. Just so that it's in the verbal record. Yeah. It's it's uh we ought to be gracious. We ought gracious in our in our temperament. Um, one of the things that I this is not, I'm not reading yet, but one of the things that um if a pastor, you know, engages me in conversation about it. Uh, I would say to them, of course, we want to be welcoming. We just don't want to be affirming. I, it, we, but, but, but uh, persons of L LGBTQ, you know, lifestyles or understandings, they ought to be welcome in our churches. Our churches are hospitals. That's where, that's where, you know, so it's not, and, and that's just one human sexuality is just one uh, sinful condition, right? Yeah. I mean, can be one sinful condition. I mean, um, but uh but we ought to welcome people who need the Lord. One of the things that uh, the, the thing that even kind of shocks me these days is, you know, what what do we expect of people that are indeed um, living in lifestyles of sin, except to be sinners? That's that's that. And until we know Christ and are, and are enlightened by the presence of the Holy Spirit, of course, we're going to conduct ourselves in things that displease the Lord. But yeah, on that issue of of, uh, of human sexuality. Uh, our discipline says, by the authority of the Holy Scriptures, we, the Evangelical Methodist Church, believe homosexual practices to be sin, leading to spiritual death and eternal punishment. Moreover, we agree that no individual who practices homosexual acts shall be permitted to be an official member of any Evangelical Methodist Church, nor shall any known practicing homosexual be a candidate for the licensed ministry of the Evangelical Methodist Church. Therefore, any person who does not positively affirm that he or she is not a homosexual may not become a member of the evangelical Methodist church. So that's at the membership level and certainly at the clergy level. Mm -hmm. And then you referenced uh, a, a total, that's from paragraph 1172, a resolution on human sexuality or homosexuality. Mm -hmm. But paragraph 215, I think it is in our discipline, explicitly says that a neither a local church nor a local church minister can knowingly perform. Uh, no, no facility, even C EMC facility can be used for a uh, same-sex union or or, or ceremony, mm -hmm. um, and no minister can anywhere else, you know, knowingly perform uh, that as well. So, yeah, those are pretty clear. They're yeah. very, very in our in our tribe. Do you have your book of discipline right there with you? I don't. I have it electronically. What would you? I'm just uh, curious I, if it's anywhere near as big as the the United Methodist Book of Discipline. 
uh, I, I can go up and get it, but it's, you know, it's half an inch thick and, um, you know, a book form, but. Oh, okay. Uh, That's not too bad. It's not terrible. No. Yeah. The, the, the United Methodist Church had the bureaucratic bloat, and then it also had the bloat of the book of discipline. There's just more and more. Do you guys make, um, do you have something akin to the United Methodist Church's social principles where you, you enumerate where you stand on any number of social issues, or do you leave that to local churches? Yes. What I was reading from uh, just a second ago, we, we don't have very many, um, but at general conference uh, from time to time on issues, say, right to life, mm -hmm. homosexuality, human sexuality, human trafficking, um, open theism. Uh, there, there's about seven or eight resolutions over our years that have been passed at general conference level that just get um, uh inserted it's anyway become a part of our book of discipline but there like i said i think there's only seven or eight on issues like i just enumerated so. when you gather is there any language of we support this legislation in the u.s state u.s capital or do you do you get involved in policy or is it just here's basically how we approach different social issues uh this the latter okay um, we, Good. we don't have an arm it's actually like lobbying or, you know, working at, at in Washington. Right on. Yeah, we had the General Board of Church and Society that had a uh, Yeah, it was it was a lot. They used my own money against me. Um, mm. So so the impression I'm getting of the, the EMC is you're kind of like the UMC if it hadn't been hospitable to leftism. You know, that, that there really is just... Um, Y'all weren't corrupted by... Uh, well, it, you left when you saw that corruption. Um, part of the history was, you know, the biggest theologian in Methodism before your split was Borden Park, Parker Bound in uh, Boston, who was leftism to the nth degree at that point. And when the denomination made a home for him, as well as many other um, liberals, that, that made a statement. And what happened in the United Methodist Church was a lot of people just didn't know that that statement was made. And so grassroots Methodism stayed relatively faithful and conservative while people at the top staked out those positions, and, and only now are finally being revealed uh, for, for all to see. That didn't happen in the EMC. The EMC left because of that and seems to have uh, guarded the flock quite well while growing internationally. Um, so, yeah, the, the question for a lot of churches looking at you is, are the mechanisms in place to guard continually against liberalism, leftism, um, it sounds like there's already an instantiated culture that is, is self-reinforcing. It also sounds like the, the authority structure of the denomination is willing to get involved on the local church level and guard uh, the larger body. So um, at least to someone like me, it, it seems, I mean, there's no way to be 100% sure, but it seems very likely to me that you guys are not going to see the same rot as the United Methodist Church. Do you have that same optimism? I do, very much so. And and because there is a strong culture of it, uh, you, 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 you are better linguist than I. Your, 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 your description that you just shared is exactly right. And I do share that same optimism. And when our founders decided that they could no longer abide uh, that growing modernism or liberalism, they put those two safeguards in place so that even if the denomination were ever to go the path of, of 
of liberalism than a local church could be. So we eliminated the appointment system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a calling system instead of a sending system. And we eliminated the trust clause issue. So, so that a local church can feel confident that if the denomination were ever to leave them, they could walk away um, and, and retain their property and retain their ministry. So I do, um, I share, I, I, I'm, I'm very confident that we aren't going to go that path, but if we were, local churches can have the assurance that they don't have to go there with us. The, pri- the price for leaving for um, United Methodist churches was, was large. It was more than a year's um, expenses, generally, for churches. It was probably 130% on average. Is the price for leaving the EMC close to that, less than that, more than that? Do you, do you have a sense for what the cost for a local church is if they want to disaffiliate? Uh, well, our, if I understand, I mean, I understand the basis of your question, yep. but may not understand the nuance of it. But let me say this. So our churches, our apportionment or our conference support is a flat 10% of regular monthly income. Yeah. So if a church wanted to disaffiliate today, mm-hmm. uh, then the, the, or wanted to move in that process, paragraph 209 spells out that they would let us know six months in advance of their next annual meeting or annex annual conference of their intention to withdraw. Mm-hmm. And the only condition that needs to be met is that they have to have either repaid any grant. Let's say we planted that church with a hundred grand um 10 years ago that would have to be repaid okay but most that that's rare i mean it's rare that there is some kind of grant that was the planting seed money yeah okay so the 10 percent conference support just must be current it must be paid in full and so um we don't ask for that upfront necessarily or anything like that so they would notify six months in advance they would hold their annual meeting mm-hmm. um, take a vote if it's three quarters of the church membership present and voting to leave then they go into a year-long waiting period where they continue to pay their conference support and then they take a vote at the end of that one-year waiting period and again if it's three quarters um 75 majority vote then they leave and owe us nothing so okay. there isn't any cost per se they don't have to pay us any percentage of their building or anything like that they just have to be current in their conference support okay okay so yeah the apportionments bit i didn't talk about but you said it's it's a generally uh understood 10 percent of income that goes uh above and then i think i saw that if uh that goes above fifty thousand dollars then no more is asked that that it's just so it it incentivizes large churches that are making a lot of money the there's never going to be more than 50k that's that's asked or expected yeah thank you for reminding me of that yeah several years ago we inserted that cap in paragraph 205 about our again we refer to it as conference support rather than apportionments. Yeah, right but, um and so yeah a large church that may have a million and a half um dollar budget um once they reach 50 now they can voluntarily continue to pay one you know 10 percent but it, it caps their required conference support at fifty thousand yeah. dollars, and we have—I think we have two churches currently in our in our faith tribe that um, are at that cap. Um, so, and yeah, it does it does incentivize large churches to. What often I think has been the case is when those numbers get so large, mm-hmm. people begin to see those dollar signs as possible staff persons or local outreach and. And it just begins to really almost de-incentivize them to, well, why are we a part of this group when, and uh, so we inserted the cap for that very reason. Right on.
Um, so there was, uh, oh heck, it was on the tip of my brain and then I let it go. But I know that, that we're nearing the end of our time, so I, I need to give space for if there are any other doctrinal distinctives or cultural norms in the EMC that are distinct from any other groups that you're aware of that would be relevant for uh, people that are, are looking at you. Uh, have we covered everything, or is there anything else that you think is important for people to know about the EMC? Um, you, you noted earlier, you know, you, you're a gracious, you, you, very gracious in your outlook and, and your approach to other persons, even people that might disagree with you vehemently. And, uh, and I think that that's a gracious, um, attitude. Um, and so I don't want to, you know, throw stones at anyone, but I will say that when sometimes people have asked me in the past, even before this more recent kind of serious consideration of Exodus from the United Methodist church, but just even say 20 years ago mm -hmm. or 15 years ago, if someone asked me, what's the difference between the United Methodist church and the evangelical Methodist church? I would say, well, I often have said, well, on paper, not a lot. Right. Um, the, the discipline, you know, the, doc, the, the doctrines, the, the articles of religion, uh, even our practices on paper, not much different. The only difference I know that I can really kind of say is we really believe them. <laughs> we, 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 across the board in the evangelical Methodist church, we really do believe in the virgin birth. We really do believe mm -hmm. in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. We really do believe in the possibility of entire sanctification and that we ought to be yearning after it. Um, it isn't something that you would probably ever get to and say, I'm entirely sanctified. Mm -hmm. um, we have some people, I think, who have received some bad teaching who may phrase it that way, but it's almost like humility. Like you can't ever say you're humble, then you're probably not, you know? Uh, so other people might look at your life. So we, we really have a, a, a culture of folks who, genuinely believe the teachings of scripture or from an orthodox perspective. Mm -hmm. And um, so we are thoroughly unashamedly Wesleyan Armenian in theology, mm -hmm. but we afford churches a great deal of, of license or latitude in worship expression in programming and modes of outreach. We don't, we don't meddle much with local churches in terms of their staffing, their, their outreaches, their, even their structure, one of the things I love about the MC is we we have a, a section of the discipline that lists out, I don't know, 28 different possible committees. Um, you don't have to have all those committees in your local church. It, 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 so there's actually another discipline paragraph that says that the superintendent and the pastor or the local board can can agree together on the structure of a local church. Mm -hmm. We have some local churches who don't even use the word membership. They they use the word partnership. Hmm. Um, it's just we just have we have a great deal of latitude in that regard. And um, so I would say that I I love the Evangelical Methodist Church. I think we're a church of of uh, solid core on on the theological issues that we've talked about, especially even maybe the cultural issues that are so hot, you know, these days. Mm -hmm. um, but we're also people of grace. I, I, maybe I shouldn't, Jeffrey, you can cut this out if you, if you wish to. Um, but one of my absolute favorite stories of, of the, of the Wesleyan history is uh, George, you, you have such a gracious spirit yourself. 
George Whitfield and John Wesley disagreed hotly on the issue of universal salvation, right? Like, and in that day, that meant can everyone be saved? Not mm -hmm. a universalist Unitarian perspective right. that everyone is saved, but can everyone be saved? And mm -hmm. Whitfield was, you know, he was more reformed in his understanding of that. Right. And um, so he was Wesleyan, but maybe not Armenian. But anyway, he, um, but one time Whitfield was asked, do you expect to see Wesley in heaven? And they had, man, he, I've written, read some of their letters. You probably have too. And, and they were hot. Oh yeah. In, in their letters yeah. called this damnable view of yours, Mr. Wesley. <laughs> but Mr. Whitfield was asked one time if he expected to see Wesley in heaven. And he said, oh my, no, I have no hope of seeing Mr. Wesley in heaven because he will be so very close to the throne and me so very far from it that mm -hmm. I have no hope of seeing him. Right. What a gracious answer. Right. And yeah. I appreciate your gracious uh, handling of, of, of these uh, varying faith tribes. And it's been an honor for me to meet with you, but well, I believe here. in the Evangelical Methodist Church. Yeah. I think we're a, a people of grace and a people of, of wholesome theology and uh, people that are welcoming but also not just going to be swallowed up by the cultural uh, trends and um, that kind of thing. So thanks well, just for know, allowing me the time. Yeah, of course. And I am going to keep that in because I think it's important for people to know these stories. These 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 are things that need to be known by Wesleyan Methodists. Um, my agenda, long view, is I'm, I'm wanting to lay the groundwork for not the false ecumenism that got co-opted by leftism in America, but I, I really like imagining a future where believers are not fracturing but coming back together under the Lordship of Christ. And so I, I realize right now is not the cultural moment for a great coming together, but I do hope that we can... Uh, it looks like I'm going to be with the GMC. I'm, I'm, I'm sold out on their vision. i, I got to be clear, I'm, I, I, uh, I'm being hopeful with them. But I'm also very clear that I don't think that the GMC is the one true Wesleyan branch. I, I really want to imagine a future where, yes, we understand why there were different splits at different times in the past, but we're going to come back together and have some momentum for the Lord. And so I hope that if there is such a future day that, Max, you and I are, are right on board bringing believers together under under one banner of Christ. I don't know what that looks like, but I... I do know that after talking to you, the Evangelical Methodist Church sounds like a very faithful expression of the doctrine and discipline with which we first set out, and um, I, I, I would like to think our conversation isn't just pleasing to God, but does adequately honor um, that first generation of Methodists that set forth with such promise. Amen. The gospel is paramount. The, the, the knowledge of Jesus Christ needs to infiltrate the earth, and, and I'm just privileged to be a part of it with folks like you and and other you know faithful groups who are preaching that same gospel so uh, if anybody watches this and they have uh, follow-up questions should they reach out to you or should they figure out who their local superintendent is how, how should they go about learning more um probably the best way is to is to reach out to our headquarters office and then they can either uh, forward the conversation to me or one of our superintendents because because our our conference superintendents are not so clearly defined as to what region they serve. We know internally um, who's serving the Northeast and who's serving the right. Southwest and so on. But so our, our, our webpage is www.emchurch.org. So you can go to that page and find contact information. So emchurch.org. 
or you can call our headquarters office. And I don't know if you want me to include that phone number, but I'd be glad to do that if you if you wish me to. Yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, the headquarters office main number is 317-780-8017. Great. So, um, and, and it's, uh, the Evangelical Methodist Church headquartered in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, but again, you can find all the, the easiest way to begin, uh, a contact is just go to our webpage, emchurch.org. And, uh, you can find contact information there. My, uh, I think, I think all of our, um, superintendents are listed there on the, who we are section and that kind of thing. But, and you can even get some of the documents that I've supplied to you, uh, Jeffrey, you know, mm -hmm. about, uh, how, you know, what, what's distinctive about the EMC, what's the difference between the UMC and the EMC, all of that is available on our webpage as well. So. Yes. Very good. Well, if you viewer have, uh, made it through this conversation and, and you would like to know more then please go to that link, reach out to the proper people. Um, but, but if, if you're already happily in another camp and you've just been learning, then I hope this has been useful to you. I, I know I kind of irritate with people. I either talk over my guests or my my questions are not well thought out beforehand, and I just kind of go, I appreciate everybody being gracious with me. This is a labor of love that that uh, that I do the way I do it. So I enjoy it. I, I appreciate those of you who uh, lovingly choose to enjoy it as well. So we're going to draw a conclusion to this time. Max, thank you so much for joining me. No, thank you, Jeffrey. I really enjoyed the time. Yes, sir.